Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this special event brought to you in collaboration with Word Festival Vancouver and Banyan Books and Sound. My name is Ross McKeechee, host of the Banyan Books podcast, and today we are in conversation with our guest, Seth Klein, who's the author of A Good War. Seth Klein, he is the team lead and director of strategy of the Climate Emergency Unit, a five-year project of the David Suzuki Institute that Seth launched in early 2021. Prior to that, he served for 22 years as the founding British Columbia director of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, a public policy research institute committed to social, economic, and environmental justice. A social activist for over 35 years, Seth's activism started as a high school student in the peace movement and in the anti-racism movement while attending university. Seth grew up in Montreal, holds a BA in international relations, and a B.Ed. from the University of Toronto, and an M.A. in political science from Simon Fraser University. Seth is a founder and served for eight years as co-chair of the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition. He is a founder and served for 10 years on the advisory committee of the Metro Vancouver Living Wage for Families campaign, and was co-creator of the methodology for calculating the living family wage. Seth is a board member with the nonprofit Dogwood and an advisory board member for the Columbia Institute's Center for Civic Government Governance. And he is a founder, advisor, and instructor for Next Up, a leadership program for young people committed to social and environmental justice. Seth has also served on the executive and steering committee for CCPABC's Climate Justice Project. The CJP has produced over 40 reports that collectively map out how BC can become carbon zero in a manner that reduces inequality, includes just transition for workers, and enhances social justice. Now a freelance policy consultant, speaker, researcher, and writer, Mr. Klein is a frequent media commentator on public policy issues, giving regular talks across the province and nationally. His research deals primarily with climate policy and climate justice, fiscal policy, taxation, welfare, welfare policy, poverty, inequality, economic security, and job creation. 
He's also a columnist with the National Observer, an adjunct professor with Simon Fraser University's Urban Studies Program, and remains a research associate with the CCPA's BC office. Today, Seth Klein is here speaking with us about his book, his first book, titled A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency. In this really amazing book, I must say, our guest explores how we can align our politics and economy with what the science says we must do to address the climate crisis. But Klein brings an original and uniquely hopeful take to this challenge. The book is structured around lessons from the Second World War, the last time Canada faced an existential threat. Others have said we need a wartime approach to climate change, but this is the first book to delve into what could actually, that could actually look like. Former NDP and MP Libby Davies says of this book that it's a magnificent job, a climate emergency manifesto that brings it all together, history, politics, economics, humanity, mobilization, and science, with wisdom of the actions we must undertake to win this good war. And of course, David Suzuki, he says, read this inspiring book to realize that giving up is not an option and can't be done is not an excuse. If you'd like to learn more about Seth and his work, you can visit his personal website, which is sethkline.ca, or you can visit the Climate Emergency Unit website at climateemergencyunit.ca. I'd like everyone to join me in welcoming our guest, Seth Klein. Seth, thanks for being here. Hi, Ross. Nice to be with you. Okay, so just to start off with, this, the scope of this book is, is massive, that you cover so much, and um, I'm very curious how you came to this analogy of World War II, given your interesting background, your parents uh, left the United States to avoid Vietnam War conscription, and you were a peace activist, and now you're doing a book yeah. on wartime. Can you yeah. tell us about that? Yeah. Yeah, if you had told any of my friends from high school that I had written a war story, they'd be mightily surprised. Um, uh, so the first thing to say is that uh, when I originally set out to write a book, this wasn't the plan. Um, when I left the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives two and a half years ago, almost three years ago now, uh, it was to write a book that would tackle what do we do about this gap, this harrowing gap, uh, between what the science says we have to do and what our politics seems prepared to entertain. And I, I wanted to wrestle with how to bridge that. And the book does do that. But in the original book outline, um, there was only going to be a, a single chapter on lessons from the Second World War. Uh, because I, you know, I had long, I think so many of us um, have this question in our minds, like, can we really do what we need to do uh, at the speed and scale required in the short time that we have. And I had thought, hey, this is, you know, it's sort of the World War II story is sort of interesting because in fact, we did do that. We completely retooled the economy in, in the space of six years, twice. Once to ramp up military production and other times to reconvert to peacetime. So that was going to be one chapter. But the more I delved into that, Ross, um, the more I started to see more and more parallels. And and it was making me, I mean, I'd, I'd been working on the climate file for years, but it was, it was making me look at it with fresh eyes around what does it mean to be an emergency. And, you know, a few months in, I suddenly had to stand back and go, you know what, I think I have to rewrite the whole outline. 
I think, I think the whole book is actually about the Second World War. Um, and so, as you know from reading it, each chapter is sort of one-third history, two-thirds present, uh, and jumps back and forth in time, looking at these parallels and, and lessons. Um, and that's how it evolved. And I really liked that format. It's each chapter starts out with going back in time to World War II and what they were facing at that time. And then you bridge that into what we're facing now and how we can utilize those strategies and also the, the pitfalls to look out for. Yes, the cautionary tales are, are there as well. And if I could say like the, the one, of course I wrote the whole book before the pandemic. And so now, but, but I've released it in a pandemic. And now we have these three similar emergencies, right? They're all emergencies, the climate emergency, the pandemic, the war. And you see these funny threads through them all, a, a key one of which is, and I, and I offer this up because I think it offers some solace to all of us who are anxious about climate and rightly so. All emergencies start with a period of denial. All emergencies start with a period of denial. Um, World War II started with a period of denial right up to the 11th hour. The country and the leadership did not want to do this. And then we can all remember 20 months ago hearing about this virus, and we were all in denial about how it was about to upend our lives. And now, you know, we're, we all wrestle with different dimensions of denial when it comes to the climate emergency and what it means for our lives and our governance. But the other interesting parallel is that in all of these cases, or at least the earlier ones and the, and the pandemic, there's a certain alchemy occurs uh, of, of events and leadership that shifts the zeitgeist and moves us into emergency mode. That's what happened in the war. I think that's what we all remember in the early months of the pandemic, right? I, I remember certain events. You remember certain events. I remember when they canceled the NBA season. I don't even watch basketball, but I remember when that happened and I remember thinking, whoa, this is, this is different. Um, but it also takes leadership. I know it took seeing the prime minister in front of his house every morning, and that communicates something. With climate, the events are happening. We've just had a summer of these events, but the leadership isn't there yet in emergency mode. Yeah. I'm just curious, I, this, this, you make it clear at the start that this isn't the focus of the book in terms of going over the science again behind why climate change needs to be addressed. But just to, for the, the minds of those people who might be with us who, like, like myself, I'm not deeply educated on climate change. I have this vague idea that it's, it's an important thing. How can you address that and help us understand just how, how much of a crisis we're actually in? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, you're quite right that I, I spend very little time on this in the book. I, I take the science as my starting point and move into what do we do about it. Uh, but you're also right that for a lot of people we do still need to hammer home how serious this is. Um, and the short answer to that is, if we don't get serious about this, um, the path we are on and the future it spells for our children and grandchildren is horrific. Uh, a world that is uh, devastating and deadly for millions, uh, that is deeply disruptive for everybody else uh, and quite possibly ungovernable. I mean, if you think about how disruptive the last year has been with the pandemic, and of course it was deeply disruptive, at no time 
did the pandemic, at least for us in Canada, did it disrupt our food and water systems? But climate will. And in a way, if you think back, especially to the early months of the pandemic, it was in its nature that um, it, it didn't, it, we, we were, most of us were able to be our best selves. You know, we came out of our houses every night at seven o'clock and bang, banged pots and pans and all that good stuff. Extreme heat, as many of us experienced in June, uh, messes with your brain. It actually undermines your capacity to cope at the very moment that you need to call upon your best self. Um, so for everyone who wonders how serious this is, I guess I would just say, if you thought the pandemic was disruptive, you ain't seen nothing if we don't get serious about this. But there is another problem here, Ross, which is what you alluded to, which is you've got much of the Canadian population that is now anxious and concerned about climate, but the level of climate literacy remains very low. Um, only about half of Canadians can correctly uh, uh, answer the question that the main source of global warming is the combusting of fossil fuels in our vehicles and homes for the most part. And so you end up with these very um, muddy poll results, for example. If you ask the public, are you concerned about climate? Is it an emergency? A majority say yes. If you ask them, well, what should we do about it? They go right to recycling uh, and plastics. Now, those are important issues, but they are not the drivers of climate change. Um, and, and so we, part of the mobilization task is to boost that level of climate literacy. Yes. You, you use the term, the new climate denialism. How does, what is that and how does it manifest in, in our society and in, in our politics? Well, so first of all, it's different from traditional denialism. So climate denialism, you know, old school, a la Maxime Bernier, a la Donald Trump, is to just reject the science of human-induced climate change. The good news is that, that those who hold that view are a diminishing rump of public opinion. And they, they don't actually concern me very much uh, because when it comes to mobilization in the face of emergency, we, you don't need unanimity. We didn't have it at the, in the war. We, don't, we clearly don't have it in the pandemic uh, and we're not gonna get it on climate and it doesn't actually matter. Um, far more troubling to me is this dynamic that, as you say, I call the new climate denialism. And what I mean by that, are though, I mean, first of all, to a certain extent, we all are, are, are subject to it. But I'm particularly concerned about political leaders and industry leaders who it manifests in the form of people saying they get it, saying that they accept the reality of human-induced climate change, but then continue to practice an agenda and a, a policy agenda that does not align with what the science says we have to do. And it manifests in all kinds of uh, unfortunate ways. It manifests where, you know, our, our, the, the, the government, uh, uh, the outgoing government, the four, uh, uh, two years ago, passes a climate emergency motion in the House of Commons one day and reapproves the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline the very next day. It manifests by our provincial government tabling the, the strongest climate plan in the, in the country while still doubling down on fracking and, and, and liquefied natural gas. That's what I mean by the new climate denialism. Right. So why is this happening? What, what's going on with our political leaders that there's this split? Why are they not 
why don't aren't we seeing any bold leadership here? It's mm, a good question. Well, first of all, there is some bold leadership, um, but not nearly enough. Um, it's a really good question, Ross. So I think there's a few dynamics at play that feed that new climate denialism. One is the curse of climate relative to COVID, relative to the war, is that it moves in slow motion. And that allows our politics to kind of kick the can down the road. Um, secondly, there's the powerful influence of the fossil fuel industry itself, which is forever making mischief and delaying action and, and, and exerting profound pressure on our political leadership. Um, but there's also, uh, there's a third dynamic, which is, you know, I interviewed a lot of politicians for my book uh, for, as part of the research. And I wasn't interested in interviewing any politicians who were out and out climate deniers. I only wanted to meet, interview those politicians who I actually believe get it, but whose governments or parties practice the new climate denialism. And I wanted to know why. And when you press them on this, it, they almost, to a number actually, they fall back on some variant of the line. Well, you've got to meet the public where they're at and the public isn't there yet. Now, I found that answer very frustrating and annoying uh, because I was deep in the study of World War II at the time. And one of the striking things about those leaders from the Second World War is that they didn't meet the public where they were at. They were forthright with the public about the severity of the crisis, and they took the public where they needed to go. Mm -hmm. um, but I also wanted to test the proposition, so I commissioned this poll from Abacus Data, and what the poll found was that those politicians were underselling the public, that in fact our, the public is ahead of our politics, both in understanding the emergency and in their preparedness to accept bold action. There's a final dynamic that I think explains though so um, the answer to your question, Ross. And it has to do with just a, a failure of imagination. And really, this is the most, when you think about the 40-year legacy of neoliberalism, which has dominated our politics across the political spectrum, by the way, not just in one pocket of the spectrum. The most insidious legacy of neoliberalism isn't privatization and deregulation and tax cuts and spending cuts and austerity and all of that. The most insidious legacy is the sapping of our imagination and of our faith and our capacity to do great things together. That's what I'm trying to excavate from this World War II story. And that those neoliberal ideas act as kind of straitjackets on the thinking of our political leaders. So why aren't we spending what it takes to win like we did in the war? Why aren't we creating new institutions and crown enterprises to just get the damn job done like we did in the war? Why aren't we just using the regulatory power of the state to require the changes like we did in the war? Um, because too many of our leaders accept the proposition that these things are no longer allowed or realizable. And that's what we need to bust out of. That's what I was trying to do with the book is to give them this story to remind them of how in the face of an emergency, you throw those rules all out the window. Yeah, and you also beautifully uh, give us this vision that during World War II and now, this can be something to rally around that will actually transform our whole society for the better. Mm -hmm. I just wanna give a quote here and then ask you a question. 
On page 108, you said, among my core contentions, among my core contentions is that inequality itself, along, along with economic and job insecurity, is a key obstacle to bold climate action. Its corrosive effect operates at both the concrete and psycho, psychosocial levels. Can you unpack that a bit for us? Yeah. So I have all of these lessons out of the war in the book, but one of the important ones uh, is that inequality is toxic to the social solidarity that you need for a cross-society mobilization. Um, uh, let me offer these historic examples to answer your question. In the First World War, to go further back in history, extreme inequality and rampant profiteering, right? People making a killing on the war, undermined social solidarity, undermined recruitment efforts. In fact, that was a, a, a one important piece of why we had the conscription crisis in the First World War, right? Because how do you get people to voluntarily offer up their lives while other people are making a killing? It doesn't work. At the beginning of the Second World War, the King government was very acutely aware of this. And McKen one of Mackenzie King's key objectives was to mobilize enough people to, to, to get hundreds of thousands of people to voluntarily enlist because he wanted to avoid a similar conscription crisis as the First World War. Um, so how did he do that? Uh, you know, in the early parts of, the, of World War II, you know, thousands of people enlisted, but not nearly enough. Right? The early propaganda that just said to people, you know, go get Hitler, you know, that worked for some to a point, but only to a point, not enough. You know, much like today, you know, people, when, when people heard about my book, they would say, oh, people understood the threat back then to be clear and present. No, they didn't. The threat was on the other side of two oceans if you were on, in Canada. Um, and what the government started to realize, particularly as of 41, is that they were gonna to have to make a different case to Canadians. Um, so first of all, they, they brought, they increased corporate taxes, they, they brought in an excess profits tax, so there was a cap on profits during the war. They brought in Canada's first major social income transfer programs. So unemployment insurance comes in in the war, the family allowance comes in during the war. The Marsh Report, which is this historic report that lays the whole architecture for the post-war welfare state, was written during the war and was offered up to Canadians as a pledge that the promise that the, and a promise that the country they would return to would look different and would be more just than the one they were leaving behind. That's when you get the mobilization. That's when you get the recruitment numbers. And to me, that has an echo in the present with the appeal of something like the Green New Deal. When you say to people, we're gonna tackle inequality and economic insecurity at the same time as we rise to the climate emergency, people's willingness to accept those bold climate policies doesn't go down, it goes through the roof. Um, it becomes more popular than any political party. Um, so that's my point. There's a lot of climate policy wonks and purists out there who say, you know, don't link the climate fight to inequality and these social justice issues. Don't make it any more complicated. It's, it's hard enough as it is. They're wrong. And they're wrong, first of all, because they, these issues are inherently linked. The richer you are, the higher your emissions. But mostly we've got to link them 
because that's how we win. When you're asking people to engage in a grand undertaking together, uh, it, it has to be linked to that promise that there will be uh, a more just uh, society and, and job security and fairness. That's how you get everyone on the bus. Yes. We've got an election coming up in two days here in Canada. You, you talk about your four markers of emergency, how we can tell if our government is actually an emergency mode around the climate crisis. Can you touch on that for us? Yeah. So in all of my talks about the book over the last year, you know, everyone, I always get asked, how do you know when a government is actually in emergency mode? So first of all, emergencies look and sound and feel like emergencies. We've all experienced that in COVID. And what I would ask, you know, I would ask you, Ross, and, and those watching, does what we have had so far on climate, does it look and sound and feel like an emergency to you? Absolutely. I don't think so. So how do you know? What are the four? And so I've, I've tried to distill the whole book into these four markers of emergency mode. They are, you know that a government or a party or any large institution is in emergency mode when it spends what it takes to win, when it creates new institutions to get the job done. In the Second World War, the government created 28 new crown corporations to expedite all of the military production that had to happen. Third marker, it moves from voluntary measures and incentive-based policies to mandatory measures, right? If you look at so many of our federal and provincial climate policies to date, you know what they have in common? They're voluntary. We're trying to incentivize our way to victory and it's not gonna work. Um, and the fourth marker of emergency uh, is you, you, uh, you spend what, uh, is you tell the truth. You tell the truth about the severity of the crisis. So spend what it takes to win, create new institutions to get the job done, move from voluntary to mandatory measures and tell the truth. Those are the four markers of emergency. When I look at the platforms of the parties uh, in this election, there are differences of course, and some are stronger than others. The simple truth is none of them are in emergency mode yet. Um, so uh, my advice is, uh, first of all, I dearly hope we continue to get a minority outcome because in a minority, in a majority government gets governed with impunity for four years. In a minority outcome, we continue to get openings to press for better and bolder. Um, and then the second key, I think, in this narrow path to victory is we need to elect a much larger contingent of true climate emergency, uh, of true climate champions. And the good news is there's a lot of them running. Um, and, you know, people can go to the websites. I can, you could even share them in the chat if you want of, uh, of 350.org and lead now where they've identified, uh, endorsed climate champions. Um, we, we need to get a much larger squad of these people elected, uh, because they need to push each of their parties to move into that emergency mode. And if, they, and if we have a minority government, uh, they will be better placed to do just that. So what can we do as voters? Uh, that's what you're suggesting we do as voters come, come Monday is, is vote for these climate champions in our riding. Yeah, so here, I'm just gonna uh, put in the chat right now, there's a link to the, uh, the 350 um, 
uh, endorse climate champions. Climatealliance.ca for those who aren't seeing it. Climatealliance.ca. Right. Thank you. And uh, and here's from Lead Now, uh, where they just it's just leadnow.ca about courage champs. Nice. Okay. Slash about courage champs. Slash about yeah. Slash about courage champs. Um, so there's a few dozen of these people who are recommended across across the country. Uh, people still have the weekend to to go volunteer for these people. That's what I'm doing this afternoon and tomorrow afternoon uh, uh, for two different ones who I feel strongly about. Anjali Apadurai and, and, and my brother-in-law, Avi Lewis, who lives in your riding. In my riding, uh, yes. Uh, on the Sunshine Coast, West Van, Sun, Sunshine Coast, Sea to Sky, and Anjali Apadurai in, in Vancouver Granville, which is going to be a really neat one to watch. Um, you know, there, there's simplistic advice out there in these final days where people, people say, look, only, the only real choice for government is the liberals or the conservatives. So you have to pick, line up behind the, the better one. I think that's actually very poor advice uh, in the electoral system that we have. Um, people need to look more carefully at the situation in their province and in their riding and make a more sophisticated strategic decision about how to vote. Mm -hmm. The idea that, that politicians need to work more across party lines in this crisis, do you see that happening enough? Are there any federal leaders who you see promoting that idea? Um, it's not, certainly not happening enough. Um, and this is what I like about minority governments is in some ways everyone gets to put their best ideas forward. Um, and and uh, what, I, what I really hope if we get a minority government is that there's some sort of basis of agreement in, a, in some sort of cooperative arrangement where true action on the climate emergency is a core plank of that basis of agreement. But, you know, if, if there's a, let me go back to the history of my book. And then, you know, I realize I'm everyone's weird uncle going back to this wartime history. <laughs> but so in, in World War I, Canada had a unity cabinet, unity government across party lines. We didn't in World War II. The Liberals had an outright majority in World War II. England had a unity government. Um, but here's the thing about emergencies. When emergencies are recognized as the emergencies that they are, sometimes we realize that the leaders we have aren't up to it and have to be replaced. So the, 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 the British Conservative Party in World War II realized they had to replace the leader they had with another leader. And sometimes the leaders we have surprise us and become the people we need them to be. Um, and, and, you know, that's the moment we're in. We have to, you never know. I mean, if you, if you had said to Canadians in 1938, this gang and Mackenzie King's cabinet, do they have what it takes to completely transform the economy in Canadian society? I'm certain most Canadians would have said no, and they had no, really, no reason to believe otherwise. This same group had been so, so rigid and inflexible in the face of the depression. And yet they would have been wrong. Turns out they could. And if you had asked me 20 months ago, you know, are there people at Finance Canada and the Bank of Canada capable of quickly pivoting with, and, and in weeks creating these audacious new programs like, like the CERB and the wage subsidy and funding them the way that they did? I would have said, no, there's no one home who thinks that way. 
and I would have been wrong. Um, so, so you never know. Mm-hmm. But we, but the pressure has to come from us. How do we address the oil and gas industry? Like you make it pretty clear that they do everything they can to block this kind of action. And they, they do have a lot of influence. Nobody can deny that. Whereas with COVID, you could argue that, you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry, one of the other biggest industries in the world actually profited from it. Not that that's a bad thing, but, or maybe it is, but that may have bolstered things. Whereas in this case, we have one of the most powerful industries in the world actually actively blocking Mm. Uh, addressing the emergency how do we how do we deal with that so uh, a few things first of all on that pandemic example um i would note it's not just the pharmaceutical companies that have made a lot of money in the pandemic retailers and you know grocery store chains there's been some incredible profiteering in this pandemic the wealthiest 47 billionaires in canada saw in one year a combined increase in their wealth of $78 billion, okay? That, in the Second World War, that would have been illegal. In the Second World War, the Mackenzie King government structured a tax regime individually and for corporations that would have made that kind of profiteering illegal. Um, and, that, and, and that's how it should be in an emergency. Um, and I would also note, you know, there's a lot of things the federal government did right in the pandemic. But one thing they didn't do is quickly recreate a crown corporation to mass produce vaccines, which we used to have in Canada. Um, Now, in the end, we got the vaccines we needed imported from elsewhere, but what did we do? We used our economic might to outbid poorer countries for that supply, which is the opposite of what we did in the war. In the war, we were an arsenal for our allies. which is why I fixate a little bit on the role of crown corporations. But your, other, your, your question was mostly about what do we do about the fossil fuel companies? We have to name uh, who's blocking progress. Um, and one of my critiques of both our provincial government and our federal government is that they're still in a mode, they're in appeasement mode. And I use the term advisedly from my World War II story. They want a climate plan with which those companies can stand on the stage with them and say, This is a good climate plan. We can get behind this. And what I'm saying in the book is, at this late hour, any climate plan with which those companies can find comfort isn't a climate plan worth having. Um, For most industries, they can still have a bright future and a transition plan to wean themselves off of fossil fuels and decarbonize. But for those companies uh, whose business is the extraction and production of oil and gas and coal. Um, they need to be managed for wind down. And part of confronting the new climate denialism is being straight up about that. Right. Before I get to the next question, I just want to remind our live audience that we'll be getting to some of your questions for Seth Klein. So please go ahead and type those into the Q and A tab and I'll be reading them out to Seth shortly. Um, on that note, I mean, one of the things that's always pointed to is, well, what about jo- the jobs of the people working in that industry? That's the easiest go-to argument that, mm-hmm. you know, plays to people's heartstrings. So mm-hmm. how do we address that? Yeah, well, and it's really important. Um, and we need, we need to make a compelling, hopeful offer to those people whose 
whose, whose income and employment security is tied to the fossil fuel industry. We can and we, sh we, we should. Um, and um, I, I have to say, you know, it's striking to me, the current federal government, for example, has done some good things on climate, but it's, it's odd to me that they have not made a specific offer to the people, particularly in Alberta, Saskatchewan and Newfoundland, whose employment is tied to that industry. Um, just now in this election, for the first time, they have this $2 billion uh, future fund for transition, which is finally at least a recognition, but not, it, it, it is not spending what it takes to win. The amount of money is too small. Um, let me um, point this out, Ross, uh, and again, become your weird uncle. Uh, so there's somewhere between 200 and 300,000 Canadians who are directly employed in the fossil fuel industry today. That's a lot of people. However, let me point out from my war story. In the war, Canada was a population of a little over 11 million people. From that, over a million Canadians enlisted and over a million were directly employed in military production. I mean, those are staggering statistics. What a level of participation. All of those people had to be recruited and trained up. And at the end of the war, they all had to be reconverted into a peacetime economy. And we did that. We did that with these audacious programs for income support and housing support and post-secondary training programs that pretty much doubled the size of the post-secondary sector in Canada after the war and, and transformed the lives of thousands of people who never would have imagined getting that kind of training. The task today is actually smaller by comparison. If we could do that then, we can absolutely do that today, but it has to be a concrete offer. So I have a proposal in the book that I actually worked up with the, the president of the Alberta Federation of Labor, Gil, Gil McGowan. I think we need a new federal transfer program that I would call a climate emergency just transition fund. That would be, again, big and audacious, 20 billion bucks a year um, that the feds transfer to the provinces. But where the, instead of divvying the money up by population, like we do with most federal transfers, we would divvy the money up by GHG emissions. So if Alberta is the source of 38% of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions, which it is, far more than their share of the population, we'd say, okay, we'll freeze that in time, we'll send them 38% of the money. But with a catch, the catch being, we're not just gonna send the money to Jason Kenney because he's not to be trusted. We would create new just transition agencies in every province, um, jointly governed with municipal governments and First Nations and put workers and business people on the board and, and, and so that each of those agencies can map out the best way to allocate that money uh, into investments in, in climate infrastructure and, and training programs in a way that makes the most sense for that province. But where those workers, instead of the promise of just transition really being a hollow promise, just words, it would be backed up by billions of dollars in projects that people can see on the ground. Yes. You mentioned um, First Nations and, and one of the key, key points in the book is that we need to really include Indigenous leadership, Indigenous communities and make Indigenous land rights a key piece here. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the chapter on Indigenous leadership 
both World War II and in the, in, in the present was, was actually one of my favorites. Um, and uh, there, I, there's some stories there that I ended up coming across about the role of Indigenous people in the war that I, well, I'm not going to recount them all uh, now. Read the um, book, folks. It's really read the great. book. Read the book. But well, here's my segue comparison. I'm writing the, you know, I actually wrote a bunch of the book up on the Sunshine Coast where you are. And one day I was writing and, and uh, this news item came across the radio about the death of Lewis Levi Oaks, the last of the Mohawk code talkers. Um, so the code talkers were indigenous soldiers in the war who um, were recruited uh, because what the allies just after the allied codes kept getting uh, uh, broken by, by the Nazis and the Japanese until the Americans discovered that they couldn't break Navajo. And they ended up recruiting indigenous soldiers from a number of language groups, including a number in Canada. Um, and those soldiers would communicate the, the code information uh, and those languages. And here's, here's my point. I mean, this is where I, I was struck. Um, these languages that are two countries, Canada and the United States, have spent generations trying to extinguish, literally beating out of children in residential schools, only to discover in the war that they were what they, we dubbed them the unbreakable code. Um, and they were key to certain victories, particularly in the Pacific. And then you fast forward to the present, where in the face of our politics dithering and dodging on coherent and meaningful climate action over and over and over again, it is the assertion of indigenous rights and title, which again, our two countries have spent generations violating and abusing and ignoring. It is the assertion of indigenous rights and title that keeps buying us time, blocking new fossil fuel infrastructure until such time as our politics, our mainstream politics, comes into alignment with what the science says we have to do. Just a few weeks ago, there was this report out of indigenous, an indigenous climate group in the, in the States that had tried to tally up all the fossil fuels that have been kept in the ground because of these indigenous-led efforts. Um, and it's like a third, equivalent to a third of domestic emissions. Um, uh, so that's why that leadership is so important. Wow. And it was really inspiring to hear uh, some of the stories of present day indigenous communities and how they're empowering themselves and become, you know, take, creating their own uh, renewable energy. Can you tell us, I mean, there's the group up in the Yukon and the Arctic Circle there that you talk about. Can you tell us one of those stories? Uh, yeah, well, I interviewed uh, Chief uh, Dana Tizia Tram from Old Crow in Yukon, where, you know, they're building solar panels and, and, uh, um, trying to get off diesel um, and have declared climate emergency and, and are trying to figure out what does that actually mean in, in, in practice so it isn't just a, an empty declaration. Um, but big picture, about 20% about of all the renewable energy projects in Canada are Indigenous-led. Mm. Uh, so there's all kinds of hopeful and amazing activity happening there. Yeah. A reminder to folks, if you want to put in your questions, we got a bit of a shy audience today. Go ahead and, and put in your questions for Seth Klein. But in the meantime, I've got lots, so I'm happy because there's so many things I wanted to ask. One, another thing that was really inspiring is the role of young people in this movement. Mm -hmm. And you talk about um, 
the need to to lower the voting age to 16. Mm-hmm. What kind of an impact would that have? Well, I think it would have a huge impact. I, I have favored voting the the uh, the lowering the voting age since I was a teenager <laughs> and I was politically active and couldn't <laughs> vote. I've been annoyed ever since. Um, but now I actually think there's a much more compelling reason. I mean, young people are once again rallying to our collective defense, even before they can vote. Um, we need them. We need them uh, in our voting pool, lickety split. Um, and uh, again, I, I draw this interesting analogy in the book. I mentioned earlier that, uh, that o- over a million Canadians enlisted in the Second World War. Um, 64% of them were under the age of 21. Just amazing, wasn't it? Um, it means, you know, they left their farms, they deferred their careers and their university lives because the emergency was in that moment and they met it. But for, the tw- for all of those young people who were under the age of 21, interestingly, they couldn't vote. The federal voting age was 21 until 1970. Um, and that to me has this striking parallel to the present. All of these young people, again, mobilizing in our collective defense, and yet we, dis- we deny them the franchise. Um, so there's something profoundly unjust about that to me, you know, particularly because they will live, they will, the one, they will be the ones more than any of us who will live through the consequences of our denial and delay. Um, I also tell some hopeful stories about how, in the book about how they are making a difference even before they get the vote. Um, so I tell the story in particular about Vancouver, where, you know, where I am and where Banyan Books is at this festival. Um, now, I'm a little biased in this story, just to be right up front about, about this, Ross, because my, my wife, Christine Boyle, is the Vancouver City Councillor who moved Vancouver's climate emergency motion uh, about three years ago. And the outcome of that is that Vancouver has one of, if not the most ambitious municipal climate plans in in North America. And it is an emergency plan. It hits the four markers that I mentioned before. Uh, Just to give you you one example of marker three, moving to mandatory. As of next year, like 2022, just a few months from now, new buildings in Vancouver won't be able to use natural gas for space and water heating. 10 years earlier than the provincial requirement. Um, uh, But here's the interesting political story I wanna share with you. Um, When when Chris moved that motion, she had only just been elected. Um, And she was elected on this city council. This sort of speaks to your cooperation point earlier. Um, Interestingly, for those of us who live in Vancouver, as long as I'd lived in Vancouver since the early 90s, the mayor had always had a majority of his party on council, always a him. And so there was no mystery to how any vote was gonna go. You knew the outcome before it happened. But Chris got elected for the first time to a very politically mixed council. She's the only member of her party. Uh, no party has a majority. And frankly, you never know how this game's gonna vote on anything. Um, uh, I mean, this is real politics. Um, And yet those climate emergency motions have passed unanimously. Now, how did that happen? Um, First of all, my wife's really good at her job. She's very convincing. But she would say, um, 
that it happened because each time those votes occurred, um, dozens of high school students skipped class, they rallied outside, they, 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 they spoke before council, they filled the galleries, and they basically made it politically impossible for even the more conservative councillors to vote no. They did that even before they could vote. Wow, yeah, the power of youth, they, they're able to move us, aren't they? Uh, um, one thing that I, I'm very interested in, I don't know a lot about it, but maybe you can touch on it, um, is the Green New Deal. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, so the Green New Deal, you know, it has its historic origins in the New Deal of the 1930s in the States, which was this massive infrastructure spending program to banish unemployment. Um, but really, the, the, the Green New Deal is similarly, it's about huge infrastructure spending to meet this moment and to simultaneously tackle the climate crisis and inequality. Um, and, um, but it's, it's not American anymore. Uh, you know, there are political parties across the world that have won elections running on Green New Deal ideas. Um, and there's lots of people, myself included, who think we need a, a Canadian-made Green New Deal of some kind that, that really starts, well, it comes back to my earlier question, you know, emergency, does the, emergency, does the, does the plan in Canada so far look and sound and feel like a, an emergency? Is it inviting Canadians to join in a grand societal undertaking? Not yet. Um, so what would it look like? to have that kind of ambitious program. Uh, one piece of it uh, that a lot of people, that's important to a lot of people, and this harkens back to your previous question, would be a civilian climate corps, specifically designed for young people when they finish high school, who want to defer the next stage of their lives and roll up their sleeves and meet this moment. And I think a program like that could be transformative. You know, I, I, I mentioned earlier how, what share of the, Canadians who enlisted in the war were young. Um, and when the war began, the systems and programs weren't in place to train them up. We didn't, we didn't know what to do with these young people. We didn't have the supplies. People were training with broom handles instead of rifles. Um, but you know what? No one was, was turned away. If they were ready to serve, we said yes to them. I think we need that again too. Yes, yes. Okay, we've got a, a question here um, from Freda, who says, this is really informative and interesting. During the war, there was a lot of positive, positive, but nonetheless, propaganda encouraging unity. However, neoliberalism has divided us and social media often compounds that division. How do we address the cynicism and sense of disconnection that pervades our culture? Mm. It's a really good question. And, and it comes up a lot where people feel like, oh, you know, we were more united back in the war. There was more social cohesion and the media was more coherent, right? Instead of siloed off the way it is today. And we didn't have the, the kind of poisonous disc, discourse of, of social media. There's some truth to all of that, but also some, some places where that's not so true. Um, one of the arguments I make in the book is that, in fact, we did not go enter World War II with a high level of social cohesion. 
when you measure inequality in Canada, going back over the last 100 years, and the share of income going to the wealthiest 1%, the peak year of inequality was 1938, the year before the war. We did not go into the war, a cohesive united country. That cohesion was forged in the doing of what we did together then. Um, it's true that social media today complicates matters, but I go back to the poll. Notwithstanding all of the legitimate concerns about that, the polling is telling us that the majority of the public gets the emergency and wants to see more ambitious action than what we have seen to date. And is that, is that unanimous? No, as I said before, it's never gonna be unanimous and it doesn't need to be. Um, but I do think in, embedded in this question is that part of mobilization means we, we actually need to make a collective call upon our media to do their job um, in a way that they aren't yet. In the war, thankfully, um, the CBC had been created three years before the war. And, uh, and it had the reach of almost all Canadians by the time, and it was just a radio service then, but all Canadians listened to it at night. And the, the newsreader on the CBC uh, you know, if I say the name Lauren Green to people, you know, some people think he, he was a famous Hollywood actor. If you're my parents, you, you kind of equate him with uh, Pa Cartwright on Bonanza. And if you're my age, if you're a, children, a child of the 70s like me, he was the original Commander Adama in the first Battlestar Galactica. But in the war, he was the, the newsreader on the CBC. And Canadians affectionately knew him as the voice of doom but they listen to him every night. And I'd love to see a campaign where we call upon our public broadcaster today to say, you know, if on our morning radio programs, we can get hourly sports and business reports, surely to God, we could have a, a morning climate emergency report telling us how this fight for our lives is unfolding at home and abroad, the good news and the bad news. We, we want our media to be factual and science-based and accurate. But in the face of a civilizational threat, we also want them to pick a side. Yeah. There's a question from Carol who wonders if proportional representation could better support or even enhance programs relating to our Canadian greening project. Absolutely. Um, and I do write about this in the book. I, I've long been a supporter of some form of proportional representation. And when you survey uh, the countries that are doing better than Canada on climate action, um, what most of them have in common is some form of proportional representation and coalition governments are, are, are the norm. Although I would note that that isn't exclusively true. So for example, Within the G7 countries, the country that's actually made the most progress on lowering emissions is the UK, which has the same stupid electoral system that we do. Um, and, and while I am somebody who wants and likes minority governments that would force the kind of cooperation that the, that the question is getting at, again, it's worth noting that in World War II, the liberals had a solid majority through it all and yet managed to pivot and do what was needed to prosecute the fight in that emergency. So, you know, my, my short answer to this question is, 
Would proportional representation help our chances? Yes. Is it necessary to meet this moment? No. Yeah, thank you. There's a question from Bob who asks, or first he states and then he asks, he says, so after the election with no party committing to sufficient climate action, we need to seek both accountability and increased ambition. <clears throat> then he asks, any insights or suggestions on how this can be achieved within the time frame required? Thanks for your work on all of this. We're all gonna have to swing right into action uh, after the election, particularly in the event of a minority outcome. Now, the good news is, but we'll, we'll see on Monday, that the polls at the moment are predicting a minority outcome. Um, and I'm happy about that. Even if it's the conservatives who secure a plurality of seats, uh, the way our system works is that um, the incumbent prime minister gets the first kick at the can in terms of uh, demonstrating that they can secure the confidence of the house. Um, and so that's where we all need to swing into action and say to our leaders, we want some form of coalition or cooperative government. Um, and we want true bold action on the climate emergency to be the core basis of agreement for that to happen. Um, and, and with some transformative ideas that don't, that aren't just about 2030 targets that are about the next four years. Um, I think we need carbon budgeting in some form that starts to put annual limits now that decline over the life of each government. Um, so that there's more accountability rather than these distant targets. Um, and we need to hit the four markers. We need them to spend a lot more to meet this moment, create institutions. Why do I fixate on, on the institutions? The reason I, I, I emphasize so much the importance of crown corporations is because if you're not creating new crown corporations, the best you can do is try to incentivize somebody else to do what needs doing. So like, what did the last federal budget do? The Liberals brought in a 50% corporate income tax cut to those companies that will mass produce what we need to produce. Some of them will, but not at the speed and scale required in an emergency. For that to happen, we actually have to create new, a new generation of crown corporations to just do it. Um, and we need to set clear near-term targets. So the government is setting targets for, for the sale of, of, of zero emission vehicles for the transformation of new homes, but the target dates are too far out. They need to come way closer. That will signal to the public uh, that, that this is serious, that this is what emergency means. Thank you. And, and thanks to everyone for submitting your questions. Um, we're just getting towards the end of our time. And, and before we close, uh, I just wanna ask you to tell us a little bit, bit about your work with the Climate Emergency Unit. Yeah, so we shared the link there um, in the chat for the Climate Emergency Unit. Once the book came out, I realized I want to spend the next few years focused on the ideas, advancing the ideas in the book for emergency mode. Um, and I, I was, I'd been meeting with political leaders across the country, virtually, of course, um, about these ideas. You know, it's funny, when you're a guy with a book, they'll take a meeting. But, uh, but, but the flip side is that you can only get so far when you're a guy with a book. Um, and realizing I need an institutional home again to put more um, 
more push behind these ideas uh, and to collaborate with others in emergency mode to advance these ideas. So David Suzuki and Tara Kallis gave me a new home with the climate emergency uh, with the David Suzuki Institute. And we, we've, we created this climate emergency unit and recruited a small team and that's what we're doing. We're trying to build coalitions and campaigns behind the emergency ideas in the book. Um, so that's, that's what we're doing. And if I can share a final thought too, just Please. before we go, I mean, we're in an awkward moment. That's the nature of these um, interregnums when the emergency is there, but we're not there yet. Um, and uh, I'd say two things about that. One, you know, I, I mentioned there's a million Canadians who list, enlisted in the war. Um, you know what they didn't know? Um, they didn't know if they would win, but they did it anyway. And they surprised themselves in the process. I think we need that spirit today. And the second and last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, often people hear about the thesis of my book and, and, and they point out, you know, they look at the pandemic and they say, look how, look at COVID fatigue. Look how, how, how quickly in less than a year, people tired of what we were told to do. And they're right about that, except here, there's an important difference. Um, the things we were called upon to do in this pandemic were anathema to all of our social instincts. Stay home isolate. That's hard. The good news is that the things we are called upon to do in response to the climate emergency are precisely the opposite, to go out and do something grand together. And we can do that for a few years. That's exciting. Seth Klein, thank you for being here with us today. And thank you so much for all the wonderful work you're doing. We wish you all the best in that uh, again, I'll give Seth's website is sethkline.ca and his work with Climate Emergency Unit. That website is climateemergencyunit.ca. A big thanks to Word Vancouver Festival, all the volunteers and donors and staff who make this event possible. Thank you to Banyan Books and everybody who's here live today. And a big thanks to um, the producer of the Banyan Books events and the podcast, Jacob Steele, for all the work that he does. People, please support your local independent bookstores. It, uh, when you buy a book from Banyan Books, for instance, it helps to support free events and programming like this, which is happening every day of the week. Our website is banyan.com. Again, Seth Klein, big thank you to you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com. <laughs>